Hello, friends. This is Alan Kirshner from Eschatos Ministries. The impact of Bible Prophecy Daily has exceeded our expectations, with regular listeners downloading all over the world. If you are finding value in these podcasts as they help you prepare for our Lord's return, would you consider giving to Eschatos Ministries? Simply click the support button in the corner of the podcast website at BibleProphecyDaily.com. Your support will help us maintain the delivery of this daily one-of-a-kind podcast. Thank you. You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God doth appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh, Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. These are some of my favorite lines from one of my favorite Christmas carols, a song most of us will know by the name, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which was originally written in Latin by European monks in the Middle Ages, over 1,200 years ago, and they would sing this hymn, or at least an earlier version of it, beginning the week before Christmas in order to express their longing for Christ and his kingdom during the Advent season. And with the Christmas season in full swing, I thought we should take this opportunity to do a deep dive Bible study into the famous Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, which of course we know the gospel writer Matthew says was fulfilled in the life of Christ, and which is a text that will be front and center in many of our holiday celebrations and church services this week. However, rather than jump immediately into the nativity story in the gospels, I want to do something a little bit different here. I want to do a thorough and exhaustive study of the Emmanuel prophecy in its original historical context in the book of Isaiah. So that is where we'll be spending the bulk of our time covering Isaiah chapter 7 with the goal of understanding what did this prophecy mean to the original audience to whom it was given in the 700s B.C., And then from there, we'll be able to branch out and look at the Gospel of Matthew and study why Matthew said this glorious oracle of Emmanuel was fulfilled in the life of Christ. And then we'll end by looking at some practical applications that highlight why all of this is so relevant for us today. And even if you've been going to Christmas services 
and studying prophecy for many years. I think we'll cover some new information if you stick with me to the end, and we'll cover some things you may have never considered before, and this will put us in the best position to understand the significance of the virgin birth of Jesus and his fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And that really is the goal we'll be pressing towards. We will have to cover a decent amount of historical and background information, and we might look at some competing theories and different claims that circulate when Isaiah 7 is discussed by Jews and Christians today. We'll see what we have time for. Uh, But this is not meant to be an academic study. Really what I want to leave you with is a deeper appreciation of what God was saying through the virgin birth of his son and why Jesus was born in the way that he was and what was the message of the virgin birth. What was God saying to his people in that time when Jesus was born and how is all of this practical and relevant for us today, even in the midst of all the chaos and darkness of this world. So with that, I am your host, Travis Snow, honored to be with you and to be your fellow student in the word for maybe the next hour, hour and a half or so. We'll see, much, see how much energy I have as I go on. Get out your Bibles, get cozy with a cup of coffee next to the fire, maybe a cup of hot cocoa if you can. It's time to turn our attention to the indispensable Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And as we open up, to Isaiah 7, in the first few verses, we find ourselves in the midst of a war that was raging between the southern kingdom of Judah and an alliance of northern enemies that were fighting against her, specifically the kingdoms of Israel and Aram. And we read in verses 1 through 2, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Yotham, the son of Uzziah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So these verses place us in about the year 734 BC in the time of the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Many of us will be aware that after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel proper that was overseen by David and Solomon split into two. So now you have the kingdom of Israel, which is also called Ephraim in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. And we see here that the kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes, were led by a man named Pekah. And these northern tribes of Israel had allied themselves with the kingdom of Aram, the Arameans, led by Rezin, which was, which was in modern Syria with Damascus, Damascus as its capital. And so there's this northern coalition of two kingdoms, and they've banded together, and they're seeking to conquer Judah— And in terms of why this northern alliance had formed, we also have to look at this in light of the threat coming to all parties from the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BC. By this point in history, the Assyrian Empire, with its capital located even further to the northeast of Israel in modern Iraq, was dominant and ascendant in the region. 
So the Northern Alliance of Israel and Aram had formed in large part to resist the Assyrian threat coming from the east. And they in turn, Israel and Aram, wanted to bring Judah under their control to further bolster themselves against the Assyrians. So really what we're looking at here in Isaiah 7 is a geopolitical scenario in which Judah is caught between the Northern Alliance of Israel and Aram on the one hand and the larger Assyrian empire threatening from the east on the other. So the big question was going to be, how should the king of Judah and Jerusalem, Ahaz, respond to the military advancements of Israel and Aram against his kingdom? Should he fear the northern alliance and give in to them? Should he resist? Should he fear the Assyrians? What's going on? What's the will of the Lord? And this is the situation that Isaiah 7 places us in because the northern alliance had already begun to actually wage war against Judah and they were trying to conquer it. And so we read in verse 2, their hearts, the hearts of the people were shaking like the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Also, just as more background, we are told in 2 Chronicles 28 that in prior battles, the Arameans had killed and captured many Judeans. And in one specific battle, Pekah, the king of Israel, had killed 120,000 Judeans and taken another 200,000 captives. And I point this out just to highlight that everything happening in Isaiah 7 is happening in the context of a real war between Judah and her neighbors that had already resulted in real casualties and real suffering and real geopolitical instability. So with all of these events hovering in the background, the Lord graciously answers Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 3-9, and through the prophet Isaiah tells him not to be afraid and gives him the following rundown of the situation. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, She'ar Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. So Ahaz is probably out there looking at the water supply to make sure he has the water reserves as this conquest is taking place against Jerusalem. So the Lord says, go out and meet him on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be afraid because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So Israel and Aram wanted to set up a puppet king in Judah that they could control and that would help them bolster their defenses against the Assyrians. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Syria and the head is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. So basically what the Lord says in this passage is that these two leaders these of these two kingdoms, they're like two stubs of a smoldering firebrand. They're like two little stubby pieces of wood in a fire that are about to burn out. And even though they're plotting all these things against you, none of this 
is going to stand. And as a matter of fact, within another 65 years, the kingdom of Israel itself is going to be shattered and this threat is going to be completely removed from you. So these were bold predictions. I mean, imagine today in America or in Israel, if some prophet predicted that in you know less than 70 years, all of our enemies were going to be destroyed. Very bold predictions indeed. But this was the word of the Lord through Isaiah to the king of Judah. And so Isaiah is saying, all you need to do is to trust in the Lord. Trust and his covenant faithfulness to preserve the kingdom of David based on the Davidic covenant. And don't give in to the northern military threat. Don't join them. Hold the line of faith was the message from Isaiah in the midst of this turmoil, which is, of course, applicable in our day. However, based on what follows in verses 10 through 16, it becomes clear that God wanted to give Ahaz more confirmation of his word and more evidence of his faithfulness to Judah. And this is where the famous Emmanuel prophecy comes into the picture, as we read in Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, and this is Isaiah, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, or a young woman, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good." For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So God is speaking to Ahaz in the midst of this historical context where there's a war being waged against Judah. And he says, there's this child, Emmanuel, who's going to be born and he's going to be assigned to you that God is with you and that the northern threat coming from Israel and Aram is going to be destroyed. Now, to really unpack this prophecy, there's a lot of connected issues that we kind of have to work through. And the first is, let's just look at the meaning of the word sign that's mentioned in verses 10 and verse 14. So very interesting. God actually offers Ahaz a sign as confirmation of his word. And with false piety, Ahaz responds by saying, I, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. So he refuses the offer. God is saying, I'm going to give you a sign. I mean, how many times in our lives do we ask God for a sign or want a sign and no sign comes? And here's the Lord saying, I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I'm not going to ask the Lord. I'm not going to test, test him. And what makes this so ironic and disingenuous is that we know from the book of 2 Kings uh, 16, 1 through 4, that Ahaz was actually a wicked king and an idol worshiper who did not walk in the ways of the Lord at all. Yet in Isaiah 7, he kind of feigns righteousness under the guise that he doesn't want to put God to the test by asking for a sign when it was God himself who had offered. And some scholars, including uh, the great Walter Kaiser, for example, have suggested that Ahaz refused the sign because he was self-reliant on his own, quote, alleged savvy 
as an international politician, close quote. Because by the time these events recorded and Isaiah took place, Ahaz had probably already sent off messengers to the king of Assyria with tribute. Um, That's a quote from Kaiser, as an indication that Ahaz was trusting more in the Assyrian king to save him than God himself. And we do know from 2 Kings 16, 7 to 8, that Ahaz did eventually appeal to the Assyrian leader, Tiglath-Pileser, for help against Aram and Israel and sent him tribute of silver and gold from the Jerusalem temple, which thereby made Judah a vassal state of the Assyrians for decades to come. So it is possible that in the words of Kaiser, Ahaz refused God's sign, not due to, the, to his integrity, but because he was attempting to, quote, bypass the divine promise, close quote, offered by the Lord by relying on the, the Assyrians instead of on God. In other words, what Ahaz tried to pass off as obedience was probably, in fact, rebellion. And yet still, God extends grace to Judah and promises them a sign nonetheless to calm their fears in the wake of this military invasion of their land. And with regard to the word sign in particular, the most important thing to note is that this is a Hebrew word with a wide range of meaning. It can indicate something miraculous, but it does not always imply what we would consider today to be a supernatural miracle. A sign could be a miracle, but it could also be something in the natural realm of everyday occurrences that somehow bore witness to the promises and purposes of God. And I'll be making the case in the rest of this video uh, that in Isaiah's context, this was more of a natural sign in the natural realm that showed the people of Judah living in that time that God was with them. So this brings us to the second core issue in Isaiah 7 that we have to decipher, which is the identity of the sign child Emmanuel. So Isaiah switches to the plural form of address in verses 13 to 14 and tells the the entire house of David, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call him Emmanuel. And we'll look at the other verses connected to this prophecy shortly. But this is where things get very controversial because The prevailing view, especially among conservative evangelicals, with regard to Isaiah 7.14 in particular, is that this is a direct prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ. So most Christians, I don't know what the percentage would be, but most teaching and sermons you hear on this, they're going to take Isaiah 7.14 as though this is talking about Jesus and no one else. This is a proof text for the virgin birth of Christ that's later revealed in the Gospels. I actually disagree with that. I think a face value reading of this passage in context does not support the idea that Isaiah is talking directly about the Messiah here. Rather, Isaiah is telling the house of David that a sign child would be born in their own day in 734 BC, and that the woman who bore this child would call his name Emmanuel. That's what the text says. Just read it. That's what it says. There's going to be a woman, young woman, a young maiden or virgin. She's going to have a child. Call his name Emmanuel. So I take this as a child 
who was born in the time of Isaiah that bore witness to the purposes of God in that time. So let's just unpack that a little bit. Then verses 15 through 16 elaborate and tell us that this child in Isaiah's day would function as a sign of God's faithfulness to Judah, specifically because he would eat curds and honey by the time he was old enough to discern good and evil. That's verse 15, which would be possible because Aram and Israel would be defeated before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. That's verse 16. So let me arrange that in a slightly different way just to summarize what Isaiah is saying in this Emmanuel prophecy. The child Emmanuel will be born. Okay, there's going to be a child. His mother's going to name him Emmanuel. Before he's even a toddler, Aram and Israel will be defeated. And thus, this child will be eating a lot of curds and honey by the time he is three or four years old. Though the curds and honey is mentioned first in verse 15, this diet is actually the result of the defeat of Israel and Aram mentioned in verse 16. And moreover, this diet would be tied to the child's purpose of functioning as a sign to the house of Judah in Isaiah's day. So that's the coherent message. The child Emmanuel is a sign because his birth signifies the impending destruction of the northern alliance of Israel and Aram that was attacking Judah. And more to the point, his birth signifies God's faithfulness to preserve the kingdom of Judah and the house of David, even in spite of their rebellion. Now, for us, when we hear this and we look at this prophecy and we say, okay, there's a child, there's curds and honey, he's coming of age before he knows good and evil, this is a little bit cryptic to a modern audience. So to really get to the bottom of what Isaiah is saying here, we need to take a closer look at this phrase and this mention of the curds and honey, because this is really going to open up and unlock the meaning of the prophecy in its original historical context. So the Hebrew word translated curds just denotes a sour milk or cream product made from the milk of an animal a cow, a sheep, a goat, an ox, and it's basically like a sour cream or a yogurt, you could say. And the honey mentioned in verse 15 is a straightforward reference to honey. Now, there's been confusion over the curds and honey in Isaiah 7 because many people associate curds and honey only with abundance and prosperity. So as many of us will be aware, the promised land is famously called the land of milk and honey in Exodus 3 verse 8. But here in Isaiah 7, the reference to curds and honey does not imply abundance or blessing or prosperity per se. Rather, it denotes the food that was eaten after a military invasion. So let me say that again because it's really important. The curds and honey denotes the food that was eaten after a military invasion. Well, why? Because when an army would invade a land in the ancient world— they would often destroy the farmland and the, the agricultural land where food uh, staples were grown in the process. Things like wheat, barley, olives, grapes, etc. So an army would come in and they would either take all of the food, destroy the farms, burn the farms, trample the farms with thousands of infantry, horsemen, chariots, etc. And the result 
was that the land would be desolated. And so in the wake of an invading army, after the farmland was destroyed, what would happen was you'd have a lot of extra uncultivated land, wild land. And that uncultivated and wild land would provide more opportunity for livestock to graze and more opportunity for wildflowers to grow. And the result of all this grazing and all of this extra land for livestock and wildflowers would be an extra supply of curds and honey because you're going to get more livestock producing more milk and more bees producing more honey from the flowers. So after the military invasion, after the land is desolated, you'd get a lot of curds and honey. So curds and honey became known as kind of a subsistence diet that was more common in times of warfare when other foods weren't available. And once you understand that, you can look back at Isaiah uh, 7, 15, and 16, where it talks about the curds, this child's going to eat curds and honey, and you can understand, well, what would that have meant in the context? Why would a child in Judah be eating curds and honey in Isaiah's day? And why would that be a good thing and a positive sign for the house of David? And the simple answer is, the child would be eating curds and honey in the next couple years after he was born, in 734 BC presumably, and that would be a good thing for Judah because it would mean that Israel and Aram, just as God says in verse 16, had been devastated by another military force, in this case, the Assyrians. So when Isaiah mentions the child who will be born, who's going to eat curds and honey before he becomes uh, basically a toddler— And that's going to be a sign that the northern kingdoms were defeated. That would be a good thing. Even though curds and honey were associated with military invasion, it was the military invasion of Judah's enemies to the north. And so after this invasion takes place, what Isaiah is saying is that there's going to be a lot of extra curds and honey circulating in the markets because Israel is not that large. So whatever is happening in the north and whatever foods are available in the north after the Assyrians come in and defeat the northern threat, that food is going to be available in the south as well. And this is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 7, 15 to 16, he, that is the child Emmanuel, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So notice there that the diet is connected to the forsaking of the land to the north of Judah. So even though this is a diet connected to warfare, it's a diet that's going to come about and be available to this child because Judah's northern enemies had been defeated. Their land would be forsaken, which would create all of that extra uncultivated wild land, which would produce extra curds and honey. And just as a side note, we're not actually told here the exact age when this boy would know good and evil. But as anyone with children knows, kids start to become somewhat morally awake by around one and a half or two years old. And by the time they're three or four, they definitely know good and evil. And I'm not trying to tie this into a broader discussion on the age of accountability 
or when I think a child becomes morally culpable for their sins and their eternal destiny before God and all that, those are different uh, discussions for another day, and we shouldn't let them distract us here. The main point to note is just that children start to know the difference between good and evil by the time they're toddlers. And I have a two-year-old, and I can vouch for that. And so Isaiah is saying here that the child Emmanuel would be born in his day, presumably in 734 BC, right after the prophecy is given. And then within a couple short years, Israel and Aram would be defeated, which would lead to the child eating a very specific type of diet that was associated with military invasions in the ancient world. And that would be a good thing and a sign, a good sign for Judah, because it would indicate that God had vanquished their enemies through the Assyrian force coming from the east. And there are other places in Isaiah 7 as well later in the prophecy, actually in uh, verse 22, where you see the same connection between curds and honey and a military invasion. But that's a different prophecy that's actually related to the Assyrian invasion of Judah, which took place decades later. So it's not really as relevant, but if you wanted another historical reference, you could read uh, further in Isaiah 7. Um, But all that to say, the phrase curds and honey has sometimes generated unnecessary confusion because commentators can't decide if it represents abundance or oppression or some combination of both. I've even heard uh, some say that curds and honey represents like baby food, which is just not the case. That's not what Isaiah is saying. We can avoid all of this confusion if we just understand that the curds and honey that the child would eat were a good thing and that they represented God's deliverance of Judah because they signified, again, that the northern alliance uh, would be defeated and therefore there would be a lot of extra abundance of this type of food circulating in the region within a couple years after the Emmanuel prophecy was given. And not surprisingly, we know from history that Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 was fulfilled right on cue. And we have to assume that the child Emmanuel was born right around 734 or 733 BC. And actually the language, it could be translated as, behold, the young woman is pregnant. So she could have already been with child when the prophecy was given. And then within the next year, everything that Isaiah predicted about the destruction of the Northern Alliance, we know from historical documents that this actually came to pass. So in the words of Walter Kaiser, in 733 BC, the Assyrian leader Tiglath-Pileser set out to crush Damascus and isolate it from Samaria. First, he wrenched the Transjordan area of Gilead from Israel's rule. Then he turned north to defeat the Syrian armies. Rezin was able to hold out in Damascus until the next year, 732 BC. But he was then soundly defeated and more Assyrian provinces were established. In the same year, 732 BC, Assyria conquered Israel and sent many captives into Assyrian exile. Then in 722, the Assyrian leader Shalmaneser V captured the city of Samaria, and in 721 BC, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom completely, sent more Israelites into exile, 
and settled the land with thousands of non-native peoples, 2 Kings 17.24. Finally, in 669 BC, the Assyrian leader Assurbanipal enacted the final population transfers between Israel and Assyria, and thus in 669 BC, 65 years from the date of the events described in Isaiah's prophecy, the northern kingdom was indeed too shattered to be a people. That's linked back to Isaiah 7 verse 8, and I was summarizing there from Walter Kaiser's work and the work of Dr. Michael Rydelnik in his book, The Messianic Hope. So we can see from the historical record that everything Isaiah predicted in his Emmanuel prophecy came to pass with pinpoint accuracy. The child Emmanuel was born, and within a few short years, the land whose two kings were dreaded by Ahaz and Judah were forsaken, even before the boy would know enough to refuse evil and choose good. And thus, Emmanuel was raised on a diet of curds and honey because all of this military invasion and all of these military battles and desolation of the land was taking place just to the north of Judah. And then ultimately, again, within 65 years, Israel was completely destroyed, just as Isaiah had also predicted back in Isaiah 7, verse 8. So you can just see here from looking at the prophecy itself and then comparing it to the history that Isaiah 7, 14 to 16, it really reads most naturally and cohesively as one prophecy about one child who was born in the time of Isaiah and who functioned as a sign to the people living back then. Now, I am aware that in response to this historical reading, some people will be asking, so are you saying that you think this child was born, Emmanuel was born to an actual virgin like we see with Mary in the Gospels? And the simple answer I would say to that is no, uh, just because the Hebrew word Alma which is translated as virgin in nearly all English translations, unfortunately, it doesn't actually technically mean a virgin. Alma just means a young woman, but usually a young woman who's right at the age of puberty when marriage and childbearing became possible and normative in the ancient world. And some have speculated that Alma, the word translated virgin, has a root meaning that carries the connotation of becoming sexually strong or ripe. And there's probably some truth to that. So an Alma, let's say, is a roughly 13 to 14-year-old young woman, give or take, who has just come of age and reached the point where she could have children. And many scholars have pointed out that even though the word Alma might encompass virginity, because young women at this stage of life were often virgins, it doesn't directly connote virginity. It's not trying to get anything across, per se, regarding sexual status. It has more to do with age and stage of life. So in my opinion, given these some of these nuances, I think young woman or young maiden would be a much better translation of Isaiah 14 than virgin. But as we'll discuss a little later, you're not going to see that in Christian Bibles because this whole issue is uh, controversial and very fraught in terms of the implications. But we'll talk about some of that in a, in a little bit. But on the topic of Alma, uh, the word that's translated virgin, we should also note that Hebrew has another word for virgin, which is betulah. 
And that word, betulah, that actually means a virgin with no ambiguity. And because Isaiah doesn't use this word in Isaiah 7.14, this is another reason why I favor the translation young woman or young maiden over virgin, because I think, the, the tra- I think it would be a more accurate translation. And so just to summarize in the words of Old Testament scholar Alan McRae, he says, Since Betulah is used many times in the Old Testament as a specific word for virgin, it seems reasonable to consider that the feminine form used in Isaiah 7.14, Alma, a different word, is not a technical word for virgin, but represents a young woman, one of whose characteristics is virginity. So again, he's emphasizing there more age than sexual status, although by default, a young woman was often a virgin. Alma is not really trying to emphasize only virginity. It has more to do with the stage of life that the young girl or young woman is at. But I know things get really controversial here because when some people hear me saying all this, they'll immediately fall into like a slippery slope fallacy and they'll think that I'm compromising the virgin birth of Christ or Christian orthodoxy or something. And we'll talk about this when we get to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm not saying at all that I don't think Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin based on what we'll see in Matthew's Gospel. I'm just saying that in its original historical context, the Emmanuel prophecy is not talking about a, a young woman who had a baby while she was still a virgin without ever having intercourse. It's just talking about a young woman, an Alma, who was probably a virgin and then conceived and had intercourse for the first time and then had her son. So it's a little bit of a broader term there that's indicating a historical circumstance. And I don't think we're in danger of uh, compromising the virgin birth or anything like that. But this is why this whole thing becomes controversial and we'll see that a little bit later too. Now, while we're in Isaiah 7, it's also worth uh, looking a little bit more at the child's identity, the child Emmanuel, and trying to kind of unravel who this young child actually was, because you'll hear different uh, propositions put forward, especially by those who read this historically and read it as though it's not directly talking about Jesus in the historical context. So some have argued that Emmanuel was Hezekiah, um, the next king of Judah and the son of Ahaz. And this is the view taken by Walter Kaiser in his famous book, The Messiah in the Old Testament. But I question the idea that Isaiah 7 is speaking about Hezekiah. I actually don't think you can prove this is Hezekiah because the text plainly says that the woman who bears the child will call his name Emmanuel. And this is the exact type of phrasing that we find elsewhere in the Bible when a child is given a name. So for example, in Genesis 16:11, God says to Hagar about her first child, you shall call his name Ishmael. It's very similar language to what we see in Isaiah 7.14. And so the natural conclusion is that this is a young woman who actually had a child and named him Emmanuel. And because Hezekiah is never 
described or named or given the name Emmanuel, I don't see how we can say that this is Hezekiah. And also on that note, I really don't see how someone could say that this is Jesus either, because of course Jesus is never called or named Emmanuel by Mary, his mother, in the Gospels. Jesus is never given the the name Emmanuel. As a matter of fact, he's told by the angels in the Gospels that he should be called Jesus. So that's another clue there that this is talking about a historical child, and that child had to actually be named Emmanuel, which would rule out Hezekiah, would rule out this being a direct reference to Jesus. Others have suggested that maybe this was one of Isaiah's children, but we know from Isaiah 7 verse 3 that when Isaiah took his son to meet Ahaz, when he delivered the prophecy, that Isaiah already had children by the time the prophecy was given. And if Isaiah already had children when the prophecy was given, it doesn't make sense to me that his wife could have been the Alma, the young woman who was likely a virgin, doesn't make sense that she would be the woman spoken of because she already had kids. So she doesn't really fall into the category of the Alma. And she probably doesn't even fit that stage of life either. It seems to me if Isaiah already had children and it seems he had multiple children, his wife would have been too old. So I think we can rule out that this was any one of Isaiah's children as well. Now, some will respond to that by noting that Isaiah does say in Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And the same Hebrew word for sign is used here in both Isaiah 8.18 and earlier in the Emmanuel prophecy in 7.14. So basically what people do is they kind of conflate these two verses and they say, you see, there's a sign child in Isaiah 7. Isaiah mentions his children were signs from the Lord. So the child in seven, Emmanuel, had to be one of Isaiah's kids. But again, the problem with that is we're never told that Isaiah had a son named Emmanuel. And actually in Isaiah 8.3, Isaiah mentions that his sign child had a different name, which is quite a mouthful. His sign child he calls in Isaiah 8.3, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So, He never calls his sign child Emmanuel. He never tells us my soon-to-be-born son is Emmanuel. He has other children. And so, again, it doesn't make sense that Isaiah's wife is the young woman or that Emmanuel is one of his children. But I should note here the fact that Isaiah had signed children in the 700s BC, it reflects this larger pattern. And so his life shows this pattern that at this time in Israel's history, multiple children were being born as signs of the Lord's purposes in those days. And I think that further bolsters the case that Isaiah 7.14 is actually talking about another child who lived in Isaiah's day, not one of Isaiah's kids, but that there's different sign children at this time, and Emmanuel is one of those. So, Personally, I'm inclined to believe that Emmanuel was the son of a well-known but unidentified young woman, probably who lived within the Davidic royal household in the 8th century BC in Judah. Because remember, originally, Emmanuel was supposed to be a sign 
first and foremost to Ahaz himself and to the house of David. So this is something for them. So I think the woman and the child would have had to have been known and they would have had to very easily recognize them. And even though we're not given a lot of detail, I think this is some woman that was known to Ahaz and the royal household who had a son and named him Emmanuel. In the words of Old Testament scholar Gerald von Groningen, there is no indication whatsoever in the text who the son is and what he does as an adult. There's no legal record of his birth, so he's not mentioned in any genealogies or anything. There is no specific indication which virgin is considered by Isaiah. It should be assumed, however, that she was of the royal family because the family is the central subject under discussion. She was well known in Jerusalem because she is referred to as the virgin or the young woman with a definite article. She is to name her son Emmanuel, which in scripture is a name intimately tied to the Davidic descendants, and she is to speak for the royal family as Ahaz should have but would not. And I think Van Groningen really nails the identity of the child in Isaiah 7 better than anyone else. Uh, This is a child who signals the faith of his mother because she names her firstborn Emmanuel in the midst of a chaotic war. She has a child and names him Emmanuel, believing that God would still be with his people and defend the Davidic kingdom, even when most of her countrymen and leaders were living in fear. So this is a woman of real faith. Then as a reward for her faith and as a testimony to his faithfulness, the Lord made this child that she named Emmanuel a sign to the royal house and even a kind of rebuke to Ahaz himself. And when the notable leaders of Jerusalem saw the child Emmanuel, but only a couple years old, the northern threat from Israel and Aram was neutralized. The people of the land were eating curds and honey from one end to the other. And everyone knew that God's faithful promises to David would never fail and that the kingdom of Judah would endure. This is the message of the Emmanuel prophecy in its original historical context. And just as a side note, you could do a really cool movie about the Alma and Isaiah 7 and King Ahaz and her child Emmanuel. There's so much there. There's so much history there. You could do a real cool kind of historical fiction type of narrative filling in a lot of the details about this story because we're just not told all the details, but you can sense that there's something behind the scenes going on here that Isaiah and Ahaz, they know about. They know about this woman and she's going to have this child. It's very cool. It's a very cool historical prophecy if you imagine this actually unfolding. This child is born. The Assyrians come in and defeat Judah's enemies. There's a lot of curds and honey circulating in the marketplaces. And then this child is being raised on a diet of curds and honey. And that's the sign. And people in the royal house, they see him. Emmanuel, God is with us. The sign child was born. He's actually eating the diet that Isaiah said he would be eating. It's a beautiful, very tangible confirmation of God's word that he gave the people of Judah back in the 700s BC to say, I am with you. Do not fear. Hold the line of faith. Look to the sign child. He is the confirmation 
of my word. He is the testimony of my faithfulness. Now, there are other interpretations of this. I'm actually not going to go into the details. I don't want to turn this into some kind of polemical response to people who disagree with the historical interpretation of Isaiah chapter 7 and the Emmanuel prophecy. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll post at some point an article on my website where I'll go into more details of competing views, but I just want to leave it there for now on the historical side of things before we go into the Gospels, because this really represents the transition point to allow us to see why is Matthew quoting Isaiah 7 in the Gospel of Matthew and saying this is fulfilled in the life of Christ if the prophecy in Isaiah's day wasn't actually about the virgin birth, per se, of Jesus. What is Matthew doing? How is he using this prophecy? Why do we hear this prophecy quoted all the time at Christmas time during this season? And what is God saying to us through the virgin birth? So let's transition now to the Gospel of Matthew and take a deeper look at these these questions and issues. So most of us know the story well. Mary is betrothed to her husband Joseph, which betrothal in first century Israel really represented marriage. So they're basically married in every way, but they haven't consummated their marriage. And so before they can consummate their marriage, she becomes pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. My wife and I just watched the Nativity Story movie, and they they show Mary. She goes off to visit Elizabeth uh, somewhere else in Israel, and then she comes back to see Joseph, and she's pregnant. And it's like, just imagine what Joseph is thinking at this time. Just imagine you're betrothed to this woman and then all of a sudden you see her and she's pregnant. Yeah. Talk about, um, I didn't sign up for this. So anyways, Joseph being a decent guy, he seeks to divorce her quietly, but before he can, the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we are told parenthetically in verses 22 to 23, so this is something Matthew is adding as commentary. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord, Through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Then the narrative continues. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So already you can see some interesting discrepancies here. The child in Emmanuel's day, or I'm sorry, the child in Isaiah's day is named, given the name Emmanuel. The child in the time of Mary and Joseph is called Jesus. He's not called Emmanuel, but his birth, Matthew says, fulfills what the Lord spoke through Isaiah the prophet back then. So there's some fulfillment happening. 
And again, a lot of Christians have looked at Isaiah 7 as though it's just a direct prediction about the virgin birth. Like, I'm looking for a proof text about the virgin birth, and there it is in Isaiah 7, so I can know Jesus was born of a virgin. But that's not the way Matthew is reading this, okay? He's not reading Isaiah 7 as though it's a direct prediction. Really, what I'm going to propose is Matthew is reading Isaiah 7 typologically, So he understands that even though Isaiah 7 is a historical prophecy, he understands that there's a deeper typological message there, that it foreshadows something about the birth of Christ and foreshadows something about who Christ himself is. So let's just look at types real quick, okay? Very briefly, we know there's all these types in the Old Testament. There's all these historical institutions and people in the Old Testament that foreshadow uh, deeper messianic realities that are revealed through the coming of Christ and and the New Testament scriptures. So for example, Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who appears in the Genesis narrative with Abraham, in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 7, we see that Melchizedek, because he was a king and a priest, he's presented as a type of the Messiah. It doesn't mean that Melchizedek was Jesus or that when Abraham met with Melchizedek, he was thinking about Jesus. It just means that Melchizedek, there was something typological and messianic about his life that foreshadowed a deeper messianic reality that would come to fruition through the true king priest, Jesus Christ himself. And it's the same with Emmanuel. Matthew views Emmanuel as a type of Christ. So he doesn't view Emmanuel as like, in Isaiah 7, a direct reference to Jesus, but he sees that there's an analogy there. There's a correspondence there. There's a parallel there that just as God gave the people of Judah this promised sign child who was a sign of his faithfulness to the people in their time of distress, so too Jesus has been born in even more miraculous circumstances, and he is the true Emmanuel. He is the fulfillment of everything that Emmanuel in the time of Isaiah was ever meant to be. He's the true sign that God is with his people. He's the true sign that God will not forsake us. He's the true sign that we will be victorious over our enemies. Just as the child Emmanuel bore witness to God's faithfulness to his people then, Jesus bears witness to us now through his miraculous birth as the true sign child that God will stay faithful to us and that we will have victory. So Matthew is drawing on the historical meaning of the Isaiah 7 prophecy and saying there's a deeper typological fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the eschatological, the end times Emmanuel, because he is true God in the flesh, born of an actual virgin. And he is this beacon of hope for us in our time of darkness, just as the child was in Isaiah's day. He fulfills to the fullest measure everything that the original Emmanuel prophecy was meant to convey. And I want to just note here on this point that this is why I'm such a stickler for the proper historical interpretation. It's not because I'm just into the academic side of things. It's that what Matthew is saying about Jesus flows out of the historical interpretation. 
So the typological messianic meaning flows out of the historical meaning, and you can't really have one without the other. So if you try to just make Matthew 7 a proof text for the virgin birth of Christ and nothing else, then you're actually missing what Matthew is trying to say, and you're going to miss the message of the virgin birth and what God is saying through the virgin birth to us today. And we'll look at some of the practical implications and lessons here when we draw all this out. But that's why I'm such a a stickler for making sure we get Isaiah 7 into the right category. Now, I'm not denying, just I should say as well, I'm not denying that there are some direct messianic prophecies. I believe there are things written in the Hebrew Bible about Jesus and they only apply to Jesus, like Micah 5.2, he's born in Bethlehem. I think that's a direct prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, the Messiah's suffering, direct prophecy. There's direct prophecies in Daniel 9, Psalm 110, which predicts that the Messiah would be exalted to the right hand of God before he reigns on this earth. So I, I understand there are supernatural prophecies, but prophecies fall into different categories. And not everything that's prophetic is a direct messianic prophecy. Some things are prophetic in a typological way, and the full meaning is only revealed in the New Testament. And so we need to be putting these things in the right categories for the sake of interpretation and also for the sake of our witness to the wider world. So, for example, if you were doing evangelism to a Jewish person, a lot of times you would start by talking about the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible, which is great, and I, I fully endorse that. But I personally wouldn't jump to Isaiah 7 to try to prove the virgin birth, because I don't think the virgin birth of Christ is actually spoken of in Isaiah 7. I think there would be other prophecies if I was talking to a Jewish person that are directly about Jesus that I would emphasize, and I would kind of put Isaiah 7 on the back burner for another day, um, because I don't I don't think that the virgin birth is directly predicted in the Old Testament. I think it's something that's only revealed in the New Testament. And so on that note, I want to go back to something I said earlier about people who believe that a historical reading of Isaiah 7 is somehow going to compromise the doctrine of the virgin birth, because I don't think this is true at all. It just means that when we as Christians say we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in the virgin birth because Matthew and Luke, in particular, in their Gospels, tell us Jesus was born of a virgin. So regardless of how you interpret Isaiah 7, like I do historically, you're not in danger of nullifying or negating the virgin birth of Christ because the Gospels tell us Jesus was born of a virgin, and we can base that doctrine on the Gospels, even if we can't base it on Isaiah Seven, and because some people they kind of use this fear-mongering, slippery slope argument, like, well, if you deny the virgin birth in Isaiah seven, you're denying the virgin birth of Christ. It's like, no, 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 no. We're just trying to put things in the right categories, and we're trying to understand who says what about these different children. Isaiah is talking about a kid in his day who typologically foreshadows Christ, and then Christ, as the ultimate Emmanuel, is actually born of a virgin. And I don't mean to deny that. And just for our uh, emphasis here, Matthew and Luke, they do actually use the word virgin, the Greek word virgin, that means virgin and it doesn't mean anything else. They use the word parthenos when they're talking about Mary and translating Isaiah chapter 7. 
So they expand the meaning a little bit to mean an actual virgin because they want to make clear that we know Jesus is born of an actual virgin. They use the language that implies not just the age of Mary, but they use the language that implies that she was actually a virgin when she had Christ. She had never had intercourse with a man until after uh, Christ was born, and then presumably her and Joseph had other children. So I just wanted to be clear there. I fully endorse the virgin birth. I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm just not going to use Isaiah 7 as a proof text for the virgin birth. I'm going to focus more on the historical meaning of Isaiah 7 and then go to the Gospels to look at the virgin birth and what Matthew is really saying about the virgin birth typologically and what he's saying about Jesus based on the meaning of the original prophecy. Now, with all of this understood about the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and the virgin birth of Jesus as Matthew presents it in the Gospel of Matthew, we have to ask the most important question, which is, so what? What does all of this mean for you and for your life at a practical level? We've covered all the historical background. We've looked at the the history behind the Emmanuel prophecy and the kingdoms that were coming against Judah and the Assyrians were coming against those kingdoms. And we've looked at the Hebrew words and we've looked at how Matthew was interpreting the prophecies in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 7 typologically. But what is the application of all of this? As we gather with our families this time of year, as we hear the nativity story and we meditate on the birth of Christ, what is it that God is saying to us through the Emmanuel prophecy and through the virgin birth of his son? Well, first of all, the message of the virgin birth is that we can trust that God is with us regardless of our circumstances and regardless of how we feel. So we all go through ups and downs in life, different seasons of life. Maybe we find ourselves having to make a big decision or maybe we find ourselves at a crossroads or having experienced a tragedy or even a personal failure or failing health. And when we encounter these kind of circumstances, we often have this tendency to want a sign from God. I'm sure many of us have even prayed for that. Lord, give me a sign. And sometimes the Lord will do that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't seek God's confirmation and we shouldn't seek God's word anew in different times in our life. But I think what we have to recognize is that the ultimate sign that God is with us has already been given. You don't really need a sign from God for him to confirm that he's with you because God has already declared that he is with you through the child Emmanuel, through the birth of Jesus Christ, who was born over 2,000 years ago in Judea. And so I get this sense as I've been studying and meditating on this story, this uh, Christmas season in particular, I get this sense that God is really calling me and all of us to focus more on what he has already said and more on what he has already declared through the coming of Christ and through the birth of Christ and not just on our subjective experiences, 
whether we get the sign from God that we want or whether things work out the way we want, whether our prayers are answered the way we want or not, we can still have the confidence that God is with us regardless because he has said that he is with us through the birth of Christ. And just on a personal note here, my wife and I are currently in the middle of making some really big family decisions just about our family and having kids in the future and where we're going to live and just all these kind of things that are just a part of life, right? And studying the Gospels and the Emmanuel prophecy in the last month since I've been preparing this teaching, it's actually given me so much more peace in my heart just to know that whatever decision we make and however our path unfolds, we can be confident that God is going to be with us, that he's going to be there, and that you can't, you can't, if you're trying to walk with the Lord and you're living in faith and repentance and you're seeking him, you can't step outside of the sphere where he is with you. He's always with you. It doesn't really matter at a certain point what you do. And even if you've failed, and even if you think that you've totally screwed up your life, and you've made some of the worst decisions you think you ever could have made, which I'm sure we've all been there, even if this is the case, even if this is the case, if you come to the Lord humbly and you repent and you seek him, his word to you is still going to be, I forgive you. I'm with you, so let's move forward. Let's move forward with the knowledge and understanding that I'm with you. I'm your God, and I will not forsake you, and I will not leave you. Second, there's also a corporate message to us in the virgin birth, and that is that the virgin birth confirms that the people of God will survive. The people of God will survive. Remember back in Isaiah's day when the northern kingdoms were coming against Judah? The people didn't know if they were going to make it. They didn't know if they were going to survive. They didn't know if all the geopolitical circumstances on the chessboard of life that were arrayed against them, they didn't know how all of that was going to go down. And so they were fearful and they were doubting. And I think a lot of times when we look at our current cultural climate, it can be easy to have the same sorts of doubts. All around us, we see moral degeneration. We see declining church membership. We see the rise of satanic worldviews. We're all aware of the culture war. We face all these impossible circumstances. And sometimes in this kind of environment, it can be easy to wonder, like, are we going to make it? Is the church going to make it? Are the purposes of God really going to prevail? Or are the powers of darkness going to prevail? And just like in the 8th century BC, the word of the Lord to those people through Emmanuel was that, yes, they were going to survive and that his purposes for his people cannot be thwarted. And we can draw hope from that and an application from that to know that there is no secular force in our world today. There's no trial or tribulation that will ever be able to extinguish the flame of the gospel or snuff out the witness of the church completely or snuff out God's faithfulness to his people. There's no politician who will ever be able to stop the fulfillment of the Great Commission. There's no election that could ever 
totally negate God's purposes for our lives as a corporate people because the birth of Emmanuel, just like in the 700s BC, the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, it's the confirmation that the people of God and the community of God will survive and prosper in the Lord nevertheless. That is a core corporate message to us through the virgin birth of Christ. Third, God is telling us through the virgin birth that we should actually live our lives with more confidence in his victory, even in the face of overwhelming evil. We saw earlier that in Isaiah 7 verse 2, when the people and King Ahaz heard about the northern alliance waging war against them, uh, it says, his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And that's often our same response on the battlefield of life, to cower, to be afraid, to entertain thoughts that make our hearts shake with dread. But the birth of Christ, Emmanuel, should give us more confidence in the face of uncertainties, in the face of disappointments, in the face of trials, tribulations, and evil. And I want to demonstrate with just a short illustration, an example from church history, the kind of Emmanuel attitude that God calls us to exhibit in this life. This is a story from the early church fathers about the Apostle Peter's brother, Andrew. And Andrew had apparently been a great evangelist. He was leading many Roman pagans to faith in Christ in the first century and teaching that the Roman gods were demons. And this obviously set off one of the Roman governors. And he then required, this Roman governor then required all the Christians to declare their allegiance to the empire by sacrificing to Roman idols. And when Andrew refused, he was threatened with crucifixion. But after hearing this threat, Andrew audaciously replied, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. And so he was condemned to be crucified and for he was condemned for, quote unquote, taking away the religion of the Roman gods. And when Andrew was walking to the site of his execution, upon seeing the cross waiting for him, he cried out, O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously I come to you, being the scholar of him which did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and yearn to embrace you. So he embraced martyrdom with confidence because he knew that God was with him. And that, my friends, that is what it means to truly live with the understanding that God is with us, with the Emmanuel attitude. We may have no way of knowing what forces of darkness and chaos are coming at us through the gate, and we cannot be guaranteed immunity from political oppression, wars, plagues, failing health, difficult relationships, and a host of other things in this fallen world. But like Andrew, we can confidently and boldly embrace whatever cross God calls us to bear, knowing that Emmanuel, the Christ child, the sign that God is with us, has been born. And knowing that the virgin birth of Christ guarantees that God will be with us and that we will be with him forevermore, no matter what. And even if we don't die a martyr's death, even if we die a normal death in our beds when we're old and gray, One way or another, we are going to encounter evil and the ultimate evil, which is death. And the virgin birth gives us confidence 
that God will be there by our side and that he will support us and that he stands with us and that his purposes for us are eternal and they cannot be extinguished. So we can look into the face of death and into the face of evil with confidence. Fourth and finally, the message of the virgin birth is that we should anticipate the future reign of Jesus from Jerusalem and anticipate the time when he will sit on the throne of David. So there is actually a political message, an eschatological future kingdom message in the virgin birth that is not often highlighted in the average uh, Christian church service. Because remember, when the original crisis between Judah, Israel, and Aram was taking place in the time of Isaiah, the real threat was to the Davidic dynasty. So the powers of darkness behind these political powers, they were trying to wipe out not just Judah, but the entire house of David. And what that meant was they were actually trying to not just wipe out the house of David and whoever the next Davidic king was going to be, but they were trying to stop the Messiah from appearing on the scene of history because based on the Davidic covenant, the Messiah was destined to be a descendant of David. And so if they could wipe out the house of David, then they could basically wipe out God's entire messianic program of redemption for the world and essentially thwart the reign of the Messiah himself as if that would have been possible. But this is always what the powers of darkness are trying to do. They're always trying to stop the Messiah from reigning on his throne. And that applied then, and it also applied in the time of Jesus. If you remember, when Jesus was born, Herod tried to have all the male children in Bethlehem, who would have been the descendants of David alive at that time, the quote-unquote messianic pool of young Jewish babies, Herod tried to have them all wiped out. And nevertheless, we see that through all of this political unrest, all throughout the entire history of Judah, all throughout the time of Jesus, God preserved the line of David and ensured that the heir to the Davidic throne, Jesus Christ himself, was born so that he can one day take up his throne in Jerusalem. And this future kingdom of the Messiah established in Jerusalem, this is actually what the apostles were looking forward to and what the gospel writers were focused on when they were writing about the birth of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 1 verses 30 to 33. The angel of the Lord speaks to Mary and says, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son." and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Notice that Luke connects the birth of Christ to Jesus reigning on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. And contrary to the claims of some Christians, the throne of David has not been spiritualized through the new covenant or simply moved to heaven or displaced from the actual holy city of Jerusalem that stands in the Middle East today. The throne of David points to the Messiah's reign from the actual city of Jerusalem on this actual earth that we inhabit today. And this is what the apostles are telling us to anticipate when we think about and study and meditate on the birth of Christ. 
So the virgin birth, as it turns out, has just as much to do with the second coming of Jesus as it does with his first advent. It declares not only who Jesus is, it also declares where he will reign from when he sets up his kingdom. At the deepest levels, Christmas is not simply about the birth of a babe, but it is also about the reign of a king. And it is not simply about a spiritual kingdom. Rather, it is about a tangible and never-ending kingdom that will soon be established on this earth with the city of Jerusalem at its center. Take heart, my friends. Greater things indeed are yet to come. Jesus is coming back to sit on the throne of his father David, just as Luke said. And the virgin birth is the eschatological sign and confirmation from God that his purposes in this regard will never be thwarted. God is with us. The covenant people will survive. We can have confidence in the face of evil, and we should always anticipate and live for the kingdom to come. This is the message of the virgin birth. Hallelujah and amen. Well, thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. We're going to wrap it up there. And as always, if you're listening to this in podcast format, make sure you also check out my YouTube channel where I post uh, videos with more visual aids. My YouTube channel is found at Travis M. Snow. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please go ahead and make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed the teaching so you can stay in the loop. Last but not least, you can follow me on Twitter at Travis M. Snow. You can check out my website, shilohmedia.org. You can sign up for my newsletter updates there and check out all my published resources. Thank you guys again. And with that, I'll see you in the next one. God bless and peace. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 